is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Cremation of Sam McGee is one of the most famous poems by Robert W. Service. It was published in 1907 in Songs of a Sourdough. A sourdough, in this sense, is a resident of the Yukon. It's about the cremation of a prospector who freezes to death, told by the man who cremates him. Here now is the cremation of Sam McGee, told by the great Johnny Cash. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail, and you talk of your cold well, through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close and the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see, it wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow and the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and Cap says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, You'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, it was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate my last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low, and the trail was bad. And I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in. And I'd often sing to that hateful thing. 
and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lake LeBarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round, and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. And what a piece of storytelling, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We get out of the way, we find some really great material, and we share it with you. And by the way, as Johnny Cash was telling that story, I couldn't get the thought of the Lonesome Dove out of my head and that great burial scene where, of course, Woodrow has to bury Gus. He has to take him all the way back all the way back across the country by wagon because he made a promise to his buddy. By the way, if you remember the line, he says, I'll, I guess this will teach me to be more careful about what I promise in the future. But a promise then was a promise, and hopefully you know people in your life now today where a promise is a promise. The cremation of Sam McGee, what storytelling, and that's the great Johnny Cash. If you've got an old story like this from American literature, from the American canon, Send us your suggestions. We'll put them up on the air and send them right back at you. American literature at its finest. American performance art at its finest. And American storytelling at its finest here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we look for stories all over the place. And when we read something great, we call up the author and ask if they'll share the story in their own voice. We first read this piece by Howard Husick in the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, Decades in an Asylum Wasn't the Worst Fate. Howard is the research vice president of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to its periodical, City Journal, from which this piece was adapted. Here's Howard sharing the story of a family member. To say that I didn't know my great-uncle Wolf Levine would understate things. I didn't even know of such an uncle, brother of my mother's father, a grandfather with whom I was close. In retrospect, it's clear that he was simply unmentionable. We'd write it off today as the stigma of mental illness. Wolf's story is tragic, dating from an era of large public asylums that America has sought to forget. His journey to the Lima State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Lima, Ohio, began in 1910 with a criminal conviction, one to five years in a reformatory for pickpocketing. Six years before, Wolf had immigrated to America at age 14. Theft was not a shocking charge for a young man in Cleveland living on a block of ramshackle frame houses with his widowed mother and her three other children. Once convicted, Wolf would never again be a free man. After less than two years in that reformatory, itself later made famous as the setting for the film The Shawshank Redemption, he exhibited persecutory delusions and auditory hallucinations. That's how he wound up in Lima, where the conditions were so bad that by 1974, when he remained there, a federal judge chastised Ohio for failing to ensure dignity, privacy, and humane care. He died in custody in 1982 at age 92 and was buried near Toledo, the costs covered by a fund for indigents supported by a local Jewish federation. Wolf Levine had spent 72 years in institutions. In the language of latter-day reformers, he'd been warehoused for his entire adult life. His aspiration to be a playwright, the occupation he actually listed when admitted to the reformatory, would prove a dark irony for somebody formally diagnosed with dementia precox, schizophrenia, as it later came to be called. Yet the story is not so straightforwardly bleak as it seems, and it casts light on how far America has come and not come in treating the mentally ill. Are we treating the severely mentally ill better today than we did a century ago? Wolf did not do well at that reformatory. In a year's time, more than 300 days were added to his sentence for misbehavior. This almost certainly reflected an onset and worsening of his mental condition. The family may have been involved in the decision to transfer him to the hospital. My great aunt, now nearly 100, my grandmother's sister, recalls my grandparents discussing what to do with Wolf. Dave and Ethel were just starting their own family, she says. They just couldn't take care of him. Nor was his extended family well off. My grandmother's immigrant father was still making deliveries on Cleveland's east side with a horse-drawn wagon well into the 1920s. Thus did Wolf arrive at Lima in 1915. Little information exists on daily life there, but census records portray 
an institutionalized American melting pot. My great-uncle was listed as a Russian Jew. His neighbors, all of whose occupations were listed as patient, included natives of Alabama, Indiana, Germany, Bohemia, Hungary, England, and Italy. The hospital itself was enormous, with 17 wings for 1,400 patients. It was considered the largest poured concrete structure in the world until the building of the Pentagon. The nationwide hospital system of that era was the product of a 19th century reform movement led by Dorothea Dix and Horace Mann. They'd been outraged by the imprisonment of so many of the mentally ill. By 1940, America was institutionalizing 450,000 people in mental health institutions. Though the care given was far from perfect, it did aspire to be therapeutic. A little-known book provides a remarkable window into the era. In 1931, a 52-year-old journalist named Merle Woodson checked himself into Eastern Oklahoma Hospital in an attempt to kick his alcohol problem. As he dried out, he also wrote Behind the Door of Delusion, which did not describe a quiet or oppressive warehouse. About me, the daytime activities of the hospital hummed. All the work was done by the patients. There was little detailed supervision by the attendants, although they were there, here and everywhere, all the time. A floor gang polished and shined, and a crew for making up beds did its work with a neatness which would shame many of the maids in good hotels. Patients worked in the art department, bakery, the store, or other departments of the institution. There was darkness, too. I was to learn, Woodson wrote, that a patient who apparently is in sound mind most of the time can suddenly suffer a paroxysm of wild hallucinations and become thoroughly and irresponsibly insane or even dangerously violent, then, after a period, return to an apparently normal state. Straitjackets were used, as were opiates or barbiturate sedatives. My great-uncle may have been restrained or sedated. Such were the limited tools then available. They did not change Wolf for the better. For decades, he was likely a shell of a human being. Yet he also may have found satisfaction in helping with the chores, perhaps while mentally composing plays that would never be produced. He may have been comforted by visits from a Toledo rabbi. He was, without doubt, at least kept safe and warm through the cold Ohio winters. Instead of investing in such facilities when the level of care deteriorated, the movement toward deinstitutionalization shut them down. Today, people like my great uncle end up in prisons and jails. The Bureau of Justice Statistics once estimated that 365,000 adults with serious mental illness are behind bars. They are often kept isolated because of the risk of disruption or suicide. Imagine a latter-day Wolf Levine. After his arrest, he would be given medication for his delusions. If he didn't respond, he might be isolated throughout his jail term. Then he would be released to his poor immigrant neighborhood, either to await another arrest or to complicate life for his family. No one would force him to continue taking medication. If he threatened violence but committed no crime, he could not be involuntarily committed yet he might present a danger. The psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey estimated in 2013 
that 1% of the 12.3 million Americans suffering from serious mental illnesses pose a threat to themselves or others. That's 123,000 people, including those who push subway riders onto the tracks or those who open fire at college campuses. Providing for the severely mentally ill does not mean recreating a sprawling hospital system. At their height, asylums housed many others, the senile elderly, those suffering from what were incurable diseases such as syphilis. The population that would have to be addressed today, those 123,000, is not unmanageable. A doctor at the Kankakee State Hospital in Illinois wrote in 1893 that the public had an obligation to provide every mentally ill person with the benefit of treatment and supervision by a competent physician. Leaving Wolf Levine's successors on the street or in isolation behind bars suggests we have, in practice at least, become not more, but less compassionate. And thank you for that story, Howard. Uncle Wolf Levine's story, Howard Husuk's story, here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 30-second feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. Their French interpreter, Toussaint Charbonneau, tells them that they're going to need horses to get them and their stuff over the Rocky Mountains. And the people who have horses at the base of the Rockies are the Shoshone Indians. And it so happens to be that my wife is a Shoshone. Sacagawea. Sacagawea's moment came. But there are a whole series of mysteries here. You're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. Clark wanted to go make first contact with 
the Shoshone. Lewis had done all of the most important discovery work up till that point. And Clark made it clear that this time he wanted to be the one. And so Lewis, with some condescension, notes this in the journal and says, well, if he feels that strongly about it, then I suppose he should go ahead and take the lead. Finding him anxious, I readily consented. And so Clark starts off, but he has to turn back because his feet get badly infected. His feet are inadequately protected by thin moccasins. There are lots of sharp rocks and prickly pear cactus. And so Clark, in spite of his insistence on doing this, has to turn back and admit that he can't do it. So at that point, Lewis says with a certain kind of smugness, well, I'll do it then. And he takes three men with him, John Shields, the blacksmith, uh, George Druillard, the sign language interpreter and, and master trailsman and hunter, and Hugh McNeil, an Irish-American private. And those four go on to find the Shoshone. And then Lewis says, it's so important, I'm willing to go on a journey of a month or more if necessary. But here's what's so interesting about this. If Sacagawea was hired for one purpose and one purpose only, which was to help them get the horses that they needed when they met the Shoshone. Now they knew that the Shoshone were a skittish refugee people who were frightened of everyone because they had been badly damaged by the Atsina and the Blackfeet and the Assiniboians. Then why, when Lewis goes to make first contact with the Shoshone, who speak a language he doesn't know, no one in his party of four knows Shoshone, why doesn't he take Sacagawea with him? Nobody can answer this question. You could say he was needed to be in a hurry. It would be cumbersome to have a woman and a child. But no matter how you try to parse this, nobody can really explain why, when the critical moment came, Lewis didn't take this Shoshone woman with him, whose purpose was to speak Shoshone to Shoshone to get Shoshone horses. My own theory about this is that Lewis thought of himself as an explorer in the purest sense of the term, and the idea of the explorer is that he alone and using only his own resourcefulness has to make contact with an entirely alien people and that if he had an intermediary of any sort that that somehow pulls back from the the heroism of this sole contact of a man who, who walks out in front of the rest unarmed to face the other with a capital O. So Lewis asked her what should I say to these Shoshone when I meet them so they know that I'm friendly? And Sakagawea offered up the term Tababon, which he thought meant something like friend or white person. And he also learned, probably from her, that if he took a blanket and unfurled it three times in rapid succession on the ground, that that was an invitation to a conversation. So equipped with those two ideas, Lewis went off with these three men. And they had several tantalizing near misses. They saw horsemen off at a distance, and Lewis would shout, Tababo! And another time, he fanned out across a valley, he put 
Gruyard on one end and Shields on the other, and then Lewis and McNeil in the middle with an American flag. I now made a signal to these men to halt. Drewer obeyed, but Shields did not observe the signal. And they were encroaching upon the ground that a Shoshone horseman was at, and Lewis was hoping that that this would be the, the moment of contact. And unfortunately, Shields, moving forward at this moment, spooked the Shoshone man, and he turned and whipped his horse and disappeared. So Lewis now began to despair. I now felt quite as much mortification and disappointment as I had pleasure and expectation at the first sight of this Indian. So he's running at a very high level of anxiety. And so on the third encounter, Lewis and his three men come up over a little grassy knoll, and on the other side are three Shoshone women. An older woman, a woman in her early 20s, and then a girl of about 12. And they're crouched down in the grass. And they didn't see Lewis and his men coming because of the hill. And so now he's come upon them so suddenly that, that they can't really escape them. The woman in her 20s does bolt off to try to warn her tribe. But the other two are frozen in fear Lewis says they were trembling like a leaf, that they were crouched down in the fetal position. Holding down their heads, as if reconciled to die, which they expected, no doubt, would be their fate. So Lewis then says, top bone, and he happened to have a, a canister of vermilion paint in his kit bag. And he reckoned that that was a sign of friendship. So he said he lifted the old woman up onto her feet and he painted what he called her tawny cheeks. And then he lifted the child up and painted her cheeks and gave them some trinkets, some little mirrors, needles and hooks and curtain rings. And then through Drulier, who is this master sign language interpreter, he indicated that they should call back the woman who was sprinting away. And then she turned back, which was an astonishing development. He then painted her cheeks. So now you have four white people and these three Shoshone women. And Lewis then says, in the universal language of the explorer, take me to your leader. And they do. And so, I mean, Lewis is thinking, this is great. You know, that I've met them. I did it myself. They're going to take me to their leader. And the chances that we succeed and get the horses that we need are looking pretty good. As they proceed, up over a bluff come 60 heavily armed Shoshone men. Mounted on excellent horses, came in nearly full speed. With spears and clubs and bows and arrows and a few muskets. And so somehow, notice had come to the Shoshone that something was happening and they had galloped out to rescue the three women or to see what was going on. And so then they sort of pull up on their horses. It's like a scene out of a 1950s Hollywood movie. And now you have this sort of tableau. 60 heavily armed Shoshone Lewis says they were armed cap a pay, using a medieval term. And these four white men. So Lewis now realizes that this is the quintessential moment of 
the expedition may be the quintessential moment of his life. And when we come back, what a moment. You'll find out what happens next after these commercial messages. The most epic road trip ever. The story of Lewis and Clark. The story of America. In the end, manifest destiny here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we return to our Lewis and Clark series when we left off Lewis was at a standoff with 60 armed Shoshones the same Indians that he'll need horses from to get over the Rocky Mountains and so he hands his rifle to one of the other three men and he strips his sleeve a little he wants to show that he has white skin, that he's a white man, not, not a Native American. And he walks out into this gap between his companions and the 60 armed men and says, top on bone, top on bone. And this must have been something for everybody. Everyone's terrified. It's one of those situations where the slightest panic by anyone could turn this into a bloodbath. And so there's this pause, and then the leader of the Shoshone, who turns out to be a man named Kamiawait, gets down off of his horse, and he advances towards Lewis. And so here's Lewis with his hand extended, and the Shoshone Kamiawait walking towards Lewis, and they meet in the middle. Lewis tries to shake hands with Kamiawait, but Kamiawait doesn't understand handshaking. And Lewis says, that Kamiyawait threw his arm over Lewis's shoulder and snugged him up against him in kind of a full-body hug. Kamiyawait was wearing nothing but a breechcloth and body paints, painted for war. And Lewis says he gripped him and then began to sort of move his body up and down against Lewis's. And he said these words, a hi-e, a hi-e, a hi-e. And Lewis then reports in the journal that he later learned that means, I am much rejoiced. I am much pleased. And so suddenly everything is fine, and the Shoshone realize that whatever else is true, there's no immediate danger. And suddenly one of the tensest moments of Lewis's life becomes this moment of the explorer's triumph. But it's so typical of Lewis that... He can't just leave it alone. The journal reveals something about the character of Lewis, and it's not altogether an admirable portrait because Lewis says that for the rest of the day, whenever he would say something that was pleasing to Kamiyawait and the the principal 
members of the Shoshone that they would line up and give him this hug, this full-body, naked, clasping hug. And then Lewis says, We were all caressed until I was heartily tired of the national hug. He's annoyed by their way of greeting, even though their way of greeting has arguably guaranteed the success of the expedition. The next problem here was, could he keep Kamiyawade and the always frightened Shoshone with him long enough for Clark to catch up? And so Lewis keeps thinking that Clark is going to appear any day, and Clark doesn't appear and doesn't appear and doesn't appear. And Lewis can tell that the Kamiyawade and the Shoshone are getting very concerned, and he realizes they're beginning to think that Lewis might be drawing them into an ambush. Lewis then finally does two things. First of all, he sends Drillier, the great hunter, out to kill somebody. There's no game in these mountains because the Shoshone hunted it out. But Drillier is a master hunter, and so he, on the second or third day of this, he finally kills a deer. And when this happens, Lewis is in camp, and suddenly, speaks no Shoshone, they speak no English. Whatever communication they have is through universal sign language. But there's some stirring in the camp and, and the word travels that something has happened and the whole camp of Shoshone can pop up as if one and start to race down the mountain. And Lewis is completely perplexed by all of this and frightened, but he decides to follow and gets on a horse and the horse is jumping too much and so he gets off and runs. All these people are tumbling down the hill, stampeding towards whatever occurred. And when they get to the site of the incident, it's that Drewyer has killed a deer. And he then eviscerated it and threw all the, the guts and the lungs and all the stuff you don't eat into a pile. And he quartered the meat. And now Lewis provides one of the most famous passages in the whole history of the expedition, he says that the Shoshone left alone the four quarters. They didn't touch the white man's meat, but they went to everything else, everything that Drewyer had thrown off into a pile and devoured it instantaneously raw. Ran in, tumbling over each other like a parcel of famished dogs. And Lewis says that I've never seen anything like it in my life. I could never have believed that humans could be reduced to this level of rawness and barbarism. I really did not, until now, think that human nature ever presented itself in a shape so nearly allayed to the brute creation. He doesn't say it in a judgmental way. He says it with deep sympathy that these poor Indians basically half starved, and now here comes this kill, and they can't help themselves. They just, they don't, they don't take the white man's meat, but they devour everything else. And Lewis says he saw a young man with about a section of six feet of the small intestine, pushing its contents, the way we would say, from a popsicle up into his mouth, and that the excrement and the blood and the mucus was rolling down his cheeks so that he was smiling deliriously. The second story is that when Lewis finally knows that he can't delay Kamiyawade any longer, he senses that he's about to lose the Shoshone. And so he brings them down to the proposed rendezvous site, he'd actually put up a note in a tree 
saying to Clark, this is it, you can leave the boats here, uh, I've scouted ahead, there's, it's, it's just no use trying to take them any farther. So they get to this spot where Lewis expects to find Clark, and when he comes around the corner, there's no Clark, but he does see the note in the tree. And so Lewis says, well now, out of desperation, I resorted to a subterfuge. It sits a little awkward with me, but I had to do it. He said, you, to come away, you see that that note in the tree, that's gotta be from Clark, and he sent somebody up to get it. And then when it was put into Lewis's hands, he quote unquote read it and said, oh, it's from my estimable friend, Captain Clark, he's very close. He just sent this note ahead to say he'll be here any time and that I should wait for him here. And so Lewis lied about the contents of the note, but of course nobody in the Shoshone world could possibly have understood it. And so Lewis then makes it clear that they're going to meet with Clark any moment. But Kamiwait and the Shoshone are just completely sure that this is an ambush. So Lewis says, I did something that I never expected to do. I took my hat, he has this two-cornered hat, off of my head, and I put it on Kamiwait's head. And then he said, Kamiwe took off his tippet. He has this extraordinary tippet of ermine and otter. And he took his tippet off this vest and put it over my shoulders. And then Lewis said, I, I handed him my rifle and made it clear to him in a kind of a universal sign that if this were an ambush, he could begin by killing me. And then Lewis says, I looked over at him I looked back at myself and I realized that I had become a complete Indian, that I was as dark as any Indian, that I was dressing like an Indian, uh, that I now had an Indian's tippet on my shoulders, that a person looking on from a distance wouldn't be able to tell that I wasn't an Indian. And he, and he said that I and my men by now were completely metamorphosed. So he uses this big word that, that harkens back to Ovid's metamorphosis, the book written in the time of the early Roman Empire. I and my men were completely metamorphosed. I had become a complete Indian. I think this is when Lewis was most away from civilization, if you think about it. You, know, you start off in full military formation with gleaming guns and good boots and untouched army coats, and over the course of the expedition, Everything begins to wear out, and boots are replaced by moccasins, and uh, cloth is replaced by buckskins. They're probably not shaving as they once did. So they've walked so far away from the amenities of civilization that they finally reach the end where they have nothing left of their status as civilized men except their rifles and this hat that Lewis has, some other metalwork. But they've really taken the accoutrements the amenities of civilization as far off the map of the known world as they possibly can go until they have reached a point where they, in, in a certain sense, have ceased to be civilized. Cease to be civilized, if by, if by civilized we mean bearing the, the paraphernalia of civilization. And then in a moment to protect the expedition from collapse, Lewis actually hands the last token of being a civilized man to this savage and exchanges identities with him. It's not very long after that that Clark does come around the corner. And they all appeared transported with joy, and the chief repeated his fraternal hug. I felt quite as much gratified as the Indians appeared to be. 
Well, that's nice, but all this drama with the Shoshones and still no horses from them yet. Would the Corps of Discovery get their horses? You'll have to stick around with us in next episode to find out. And great job as always. That's Alex doing a, a never-ending good job on the most epic road trip ever, the story of U.S. Lewis and Clark. And thanks as always to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on. And the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, he deserved it. This is our American story, the Lewis and Clark story. The most epic road trip ever. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business and innovation to your stories, and you can send us your best at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We love to hear from our listeners, and we produce them, and we put them right back up on the airwaves and on our podcasts, and we play them for you. Your stories interest us, and they're some of the best we've done. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our five best stories each week. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll send them to you in audio form and in typed form, in written form as well. And now it's time for an essay, an article by Thomas Paine. And we had given you one other by this great Revolutionary War writer called Common Sense, and it was performed good pieces of it. During our Constitution Week, we do it every year. But this one is called The American Crisis, and it's a collection of articles written by Paine during the Revolutionary War between 1776 and 1783 that came after his widely popular pamphlet, Common Sense. So this followed that masterpiece. General George Washington found this first essay so inspiring that he ordered it to be read to the troops at Valley Forge. Here now is the voice of the late, the great Orson Welles. From a pamphlet, the first in the series called The American Crisis by Thomas Paine, written by him December 19th, 1776. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to set a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Why is it that the enemy have left the New England provinces and made these middle ones the seat of war? The answer is easy. New England is not infested with Tories, and we are. And what is a Tory? Good God, what is he? I should not be afraid to go with an hundred Whigs against a thousand Tories were they to attempt to get into arms. Every Tory is a coward, for a servile, slavish, self-interested fear is the foundation of Toryism, and a man under such influence, though he may be cruel, never can be brave. 
I once felt all that kind of anger which a man ought to feel against the mean principles that are held by the Tories. A noted one who kept a tavern at Amboy was standing at his door with as pretty a child in his hand about eight or nine years old as I ever saw. And after speaking his mind as freely as he thought was prudent, finished with this unfatherly expression, Well, give me peace in my day. Not a man lives on the continent but fully believes that a separation must sometime or other finally take place. And a, a generous parent would have said, If there must be trouble, let it be in my day, that my child may have peace. And this single reflection, well applied, is sufficient to awaken every man to duty. I call not upon a few, but upon all. Not on this state or that state, but on every state. Up and help us lay your shoulders to the wheel. that I have too much force than too little when so great an object is at stake. Let it be told to the future world that in the depth of winter when nothing but hope and virtue could survive, that the city and the country, alarmed at one common danger, came forth to meet and to repulse it. It matters not where you live or what rank of life you hold. The evil or the blessing will reach you all. The far and the near, the home counties in the back, the rich and the poor will suffer or rejoice alike. The heart that feels not now is dead. The blood of his children shall curse his cowardice, who shrinks back at a time when a little might have saved the whole and made them happy. I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. It is the business of little minds to shrink. But he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. My own line of reasoning is to myself as straight and clear as a ray of light. Not all the treasures of the world, so far as I believe, could have induced me to support an offensive war, for I think it murder. But if a thief break into my house, burn and destroy my property and kill or threaten to kill me or those that are in it, am I to suffer it? What signifies it to me, whether he who does it is a king or a common man, my countrymen or not my countrymen, whether it be done by an individual villain or an army of them, let them call me rebel and welcome. I feel no concern from it. But I should suffer the misery of devils were I to swear allegiance to one whose character is that of a sottish, stupid, stubborn, worthless, brutish man. I conceive likewise a horrid idea in receiving mercy from a being who at the last day shall be shrieking to the rocks and mountains to cover him and fleeing with terror from the orphan, the widow, and the slain of America. There are cases which cannot be overdone by language, and this is one. By perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils. A ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope. Look on this picture and weep over it. And if there yet remains one thoughtless wretch who believes it not, let him suffer it unlamented. And again, that's Orson Welles, and what a reading. And my goodness, let them call me rebel and welcome it. And we can understand why General George Washington had this essay in particular read to the American troops fighting against the mighty British army. Nobody could have predicted, by the way, that we would beat that army, a ragtag army of our own assembled on the fly, and we did it. And we tell these stories because... Well, when you start to hear things like, boy, America's so divided. Well, listen to our hour 
with Daniel Mark Epstein called The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's Home. And my goodness, Ben Franklin was with the Patriots. His son, who was the governor of New Jersey, was not the father. Regrettably, never talked to the son again. The son, while the governor of New Jersey, who sided with the British, found himself in solitary confinement for two years and then exiled to England. America has been divided for a long time. And my goodness, these stories remind us that we do it, for the most part, today, peacefully. This is Lee Habib, Orson Welles, Thomas Paine, The American Crisis, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on this show, and that's family, love, faith, music, movies, food, and yes, we talk a lot about work and a lot about education, because that's a big part of our lives, and we hear so often from young people and parents alike about this problem called education, and does everyone need to go to college? And in this 21st century, there are so many good jobs chasing not nearly enough qualified applicants, and what to do about it. What to do about it. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were doing what we do. Sometimes we're watching stuff on TV so you don't have to. And there was a woman, Ginny Rometty, who was the CEO of IBM, and she was talking at this governor's conference. And all the governors of the country are there, and they're there to talk about this problem. Their schools, all the money we're spending as taxpayers in our respective states and as a federal government. And what are we doing to solve this problem, this skills problem in this country? And should every kid go to college? By the way, Ginny Rometty is the CEO of IBM, but no one would have ever thought this woman was going to be such a thing. Because, well, at the age of 15, her father, well, he just got out of Dodge and left her mom to raise four kids without the help of another provider. But Jenny went to Northwestern, rose up IBM, and became again the CEO. And here she is defining the problem to this audience, again, of governors of all 50 states. This is not a world where everybody has to be a data scientist. If we paint a vision that the only people with good jobs are everyone with a four-year college degree or a PhD, I think that cre- that is not what this world can do. It is going to create a division that is even larger in this country between the haves and the have-nots. You cannot, there must be good paying jobs, and I think it's quite possible. We played around with a term called new collar, which said, we can see it. It's not a four-year degree. Think of it as with less than a four-year degree, maybe you want to call it a six-year high school, you can get a very good productive job in the data economy in many, many different fields. So we set out on this, it's now been six years that we started down this path. Coined it new collar, so not blue collar, not white collar, tried to have no stereotype that would be a negative stereotype with this. But the problem for students and companies alike is that very few schools or other institutions are preparing young people for these new collar jobs. So IBM decided to take action with their own Pathways in Technology program to reinvent education. 
It is a public-private partnership that spans grades 9 to 14, combining high school, college, and a career. We will now be up to 120. Texas is going to do another 20, seven states. Uh, as, as the full pipeline of every grade is full, we'll be at more than 60,000 kids. And the idea is 120 schools, a very simple formula. And I already know it's working because I've hired a bunch of them already. They're coming out the other end. I've been at it now long enough, so I got proof. Um, the idea is simple. Take a four-year high school with a joint community college. You offer the kids the chance to get their high school degree and their associate degree at the same time. We as industry, public-private partnership, offer mentorship, electronic mentorship for the kids, and a chance at a job. Now, the curriculum, it is not like a trade school. These kids are getting a good, broad education, but it is more practical education that can be hired. And so the kids now are graduating and making double the median income. Uh, whether it's not just cybersecurity jobs, it's not just direct IT jobs, it's digital designers. And we've got, oh boy, now it's up to 400 other companies across the country helping us with taking on and giving the kids the mentorships and the internships. They even get internships during, paid internships no less, uh, during this. And so to me, that's one way for the youth. I think it's a public-private partnership. I need the employees. Everybody I know needs the employees. I mean, the gap of jobs in this country is still millions. I just look at cybersecurity, it's gonna be millions again to go forward. And even with now the Jobs Act, we can bring in back all the jobs, we don't have to train people. So to me, this is a really big deal. And when you look at the um, graduation rates out of community college, we're 400 times better than the average community college graduation rate. 85% of the kids are either graduating with their associate degree or going on to college. We started with the most underserved kids. 70% qualify for free lunch or lunch assistance, if, if that's maybe kind of a, a guide for underserved. And they're coming out now. So it's really something that I am so, uh, you can tell I hope, so passionate about that, and I do believe it's a responsibility. I mean, we create this, it's our responsibility to work public-private partnership, and, and there is no one better to sponsor it. There is no one who else can other than a governor. And by the way, that's the sound of big bad business, folks. Reaching out, speaking out, putting their capital on the line and saying, please help us, educators, families, America. We want to fill these jobs, and we're here to help with the training with, as she said before, electronic mentorship. We can pipe in a lot of learning from people who are on the job who are willing to give some of their time to teach. It's like apprenticeship via the Internet. We know this is possible, right? Well, I never saw a set of governors so excited to talk at one of these governors' conferences because this was real-life solutions without a burden on the taxpayers, folks. Here's Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado. When one of the IBM executives came and pitched me on P-TECH, which was in 2012, in Pathways of Technologies, we call it P-TECH. It's P-TECH, yeah. Um, but anyway, I love that IBM gave this guy leeway on IBM time to go out and go out to other states. First they did in New York and then showed it could work and then said, all right, here's, we'll, we'll set up for you. You guys are going to have to engage it. So we have it in three, three school districts now. And the thing that's amazing, so it's in one of our school districts is in St. Frayne Valley School Districts. And... Uh, they're up there. They're in their second year there. They're our third school district, but they have a little over 100 kids, 
70% come from low, impact, low income Hispanic households. Uh, almost everyone will be the first generation, first in their generation to go to college. So that ability to provide technology pathways to everybody is really astounding. I just want to make sure that you got recognized for, uh, for that leadership. Well, thank you for your leadership on it, too. So seriously. 100 kids' lives changed forever. And again, 70% of those kids in that one school district in Colorado, 70% low-income households. Next up, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland. We started this in Baltimore City. We found out what you were doing from New York. And uh, we said, we've got to get this in our state. And we took on, we started with two schools, two of the most challenged schools in Baltimore City and teamed up with Baltimore City Community College. I was just there a couple of days ago visiting with the teachers and the, with the kids and the students. And I can tell you, we're trying to expand this all over the state. It, number one, we, you know, we're the cyber capital of America. We house NSA and NIST and the Cyber Center of Excellence. We have 17 universities that are cyber uh, related, 12,000 IT companies. Uh, and so we have a huge need for people with technical skills. And we're doing that all over at every level. That's not just what this is about, getting kids into uh, learning technology. To see the faces of these kids who are literally, their parents are crying because of the opportunity. They're kids that might not have ever had any opportunity or any hope for a better future that have mentors and paid summer internships and they're learning and they're excited and they see a future because of this and they're first in line for jobs at IBM or one of the other companies that sponsor. It's just an incredible program. So I know six of my colleagues are already doing it. Um, I just want to thank IBM for the innovation and encourage all of you to uh, take a serious look. It's a wonderful program. Thank you. It's a, it's a funny thing, you know, the uh, all of the uh, education, because part of what we also do, the kids learn, you know, how do you eat a business meal? What's the appropriate way to dress? How do you go to, I mean, there are many things you teach beyond just the content, as you saw, right? But boy, to those, I've never met a parent that didn't want a better life for their child, right? And never. No, it doesn't matter. Yep, so true. And finally, Jenny suggested that we seriously consider how schooling fits into our lives. Is it really something that we can do in one big chunk? I think you need to rethink the education model. We are now going to be in a lifelong learning model. That is a different world because this won't be the last time. And so where we used to think you could finish at grade 12, maybe go on through university, you're done and the rest takes care of itself. I don't know. To me, I've given a lot of thought about does this mean a new, a new sort of continuous training model that gets put in? Does education really change in every state? Somebody's going to have to start to tackle that. It's not that I'm looking for incentives. That's, I don't need them in a, in a company of our size. But the small, medium businesses, this constant retraining that's going to go on, I think is going to be a fact of life we're going to focus on. And it is. And, you know, you're thinking about $100,000 between the ages of 18 and 22. Well, maybe that needs to go into an education savings account for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. What was really beautiful about this event, folks, is you were hearing from Republican governors, Democrat governors. They weren't fighting. They weren't screaming. They weren't yelling at each other. By the way, that's why it's not on the news. But it's important to the families listening, and that's why we bring it to you. Good news out there. Pathways in technology. If it's not in your school district, ask your superintendent why and push and push. There's companies out there waiting to help. Ginny Rometty's story, let's face it, the American worker's story in the 21st century, and all of our family's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time now for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, who are working hard and fighting hard for our nation's entrepreneurs, fighting for policies that help those small business owners grow into bigger ones. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us this next American Dreamers story. I also worked for Illinois Masonic Hospital in the inhalation therapy department the summer of 1967. Now think about this for a minute. 1967, before lawyers got as litigious and as many, they would hire a 16-year-old high school kid to provide oxygen therapy treatments and train him on the job. Now, the only way a 16-year-old kid gets into Illinois Masonic is they're either a patient or they're visiting somebody, and that's about it. And that's a real shame. And by the way, the voice that you're listening to is one that was born a billionaire. And even though they don't need first jobs, they still need first jobs. At least their parents thought so. To become good people, hardworking people, and that can't be given to them. And nothing was given to this person's ancestors when they came to this country except opportunity. Her family fled a Jewish ghetto in Russia in the 19th century and landed in Chicago. Their little boy, Nicholas, taught himself English by translating the Chicago Tribune into Russian, first using an English to German dictionary and then a German to Russian one. He later became a druggist and decided to go to law school at night while he and his wife were trying to take care of three kids. And one of those kids would have kids who'd create Hyatt Hotels. Only in America. This is the story of Jennifer Pritzker's family, and we continue with her story. I think we do our children a real disservice by not allowing them more real-world experiences. I think a child learns as much getting themselves to school as they do once they actually get there. See, that's the one thing that I think helped me as a child, because from a very early age, we lived in Oberlin, Ohio for five years, from 1953 to 1958. So when I hit the first grade, we lived about a mile from the schoolhouse. My father taught me how to ride a bike, because in Oberlin, Ohio, in 1956, you either walked or rode a bike. Six years old, nobody thought anything yeah. of it. Most of the people kind of knew each other and perfectly safe to do so. And again, those, those are the kinds of experiences that my parents provided for me that I think were very helpful. In terms of schooling, Jennifer decided not to go to college right away. And here's just one of the reasons why. Well, I was a terrible high school student. It took me five years to get through high school on a 1.89 GPA. But there was another reason, too. Jennifer liked working better. I liked the idea that I was getting paid to show up someplace. I wasn't nearly as distracted as I was in school. I felt I was getting exposure to the real world. And unlike many parents, Jennifer's weren't concerned about her not wanting to go to college. She said that as long as I was either in school or employed, they were happy. And for a time, 
She took on, let's just say, some untraditional jobs, including becoming a truck driver in Arkansas, where she said she felt like she was the only Jewish person within 20 miles and perhaps was the richest truck driver there ever was. And then Jennifer joined a kibbutz, two of them in fact, which are real-life collectivist communities in Israel. An Israeli kibbutz, theoretically, is pure communism. But the way they operated, in fact, was more like a family business. And by the time I got there, they had deviated somewhat from their original form. I used to listen to the old-timers tell me that when they first got there in the 30s, they used to have long debates over whether people should be allowed to have coffee pots or teapots in their own rooms. Because if somebody had their own coffee pot, they wouldn't do as much socializing with everybody else if they went to the Moadon, the common room. It's like what they say about politics and academic departments. The debates are so vicious precisely because the stakes are so low. The kibbutzes went on to allow you to have a coffee pot in your own room. And Jennifer went on to serve in the U.S. Army in the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. And today, Jennifer is an investor and philanthropist and is perhaps most well known for her terrific Pritzker Military Museum and Library that's right in downtown Chicago. And perhaps my favorite part of my conversation with Jennifer is when she talked about the moral purposes of both for-profit and nonprofit enterprises and the surprising interplay between them. There's the Jewish concept of tzedakah, you know, in which you have an obligation to give back to the community that you live in, mm -hmm. but it also is pragmatic business sense, as in 100 cents equals a dollar, because if you don't help sustain the environment that you're operating in, you won't survive. So, to put it rather simplistically, if you want to make a buck, you got to give a buck. If you want to give a buck, you have to make a buck. And it's kind of the economic corollary to you know, environmental life cycle in nature. You know, it all has to be in balance. You can't be so devoted to making a profit that you forget about the community that you're living in, but you can't be so involved in trying to save the world that you don't have to face the pragmatic necessity of maintaining the ways and means to do it. So essentially, basically what I do is try to maintain that balance. You know, make enough to where I can do some good and do some good so that I, I live in an environment where I can make the money to do some good. And my goodness, talk about doing some good, this Jewish principle of giving. There's no population in this country that gives quite like Jewish Americans. We did a story on Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, himself Jewish, grew up in poor circumstances like the Pritzkers, and a Jewish refugee like the Pritzkers, like Sheldon Adelson, who runs the Las Vegas Sands. And Bernie Marcus pointed out to us that although Jews make up only 2% of America's population, the Jews make up 18% of American philanthropy, and that is a remarkable number, a remarkable achievement, and something we love to talk about here in this country. All the various beautiful and great groups that make up this American tapestry, and the Jewish people are a fundamental part 
of the American story. The story of Jennifer Pritzker, and in a way, the story of her family and so many other families who come to this country for economic opportunity, religious freedom, and the chance to better their families' lives. Jennifer Pritzker's story, here on Our American Story. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. This is Our American Stories, and as you've come to expect, we tell stories about everything, the good, the bad, and the difficult in life, and when we do the difficult, it's always about how we rise above difficult circumstances and how those difficult circumstances shape us and test us, and ultimately, well, in the end, it's who we are, how we get through those kinds of things, and All October month long is Infant Loss Month. It was declared in 1988 by then-President Ronald Reagan. And it honors the lives lost through miscarriage, stillborn birth, sudden infant death syndrome, and other such tragedies. And it's personal to many of the folks on this staff. We've all or many of us have had experience with this. Uh, My wife's best friend in Baltimore, Pam, lost not one but two babies to a miscarriage The first was tough, and the second one, I'd never seen that kind of grief, and we worried, actually, for Pam's life. So depressed was she, and she ultimately came out of it and had more kids and more babies. But boy, it was a tough year or two. And so that's why we bring you these stories, and write to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll help you record your story when we share these things. It makes all of us feel less alone. In today's story, we hear from Samantha Banerjee, who experienced a stillborn birth with her daughter, Alana Marie. She has black hair, I remember someone calling out brightly. I'd expected this part to be a nightmare, knowing in advance that our baby wasn't going to make it. I'd expected terrifying. I'd expected somber. I'd expected heartbreak. I'd at the very least expected hard work and physical exhaustion. But what I didn't expect was joy. I didn't expect to feel focused and strong and confident as I brought my baby into this world. 
I didn't expect unadulterated wonder and appreciation and awe at the tiny little miracle my body had produced. I certainly didn't expect that my baby girl would come out warm and soft and glowing, looking like a perfect sleeping little angel, that her face would so much resemble her father that it would take my breath away, that my heart would immediately burst with love for every inch of her flawless little body, as devastatingly still as it was. It turned out Alana's birth wasn't a nightmare at all. It was beautiful. It felt right, everything I'd hoped for. Everything except the fact that she hadn't taken her first breath and never would. So we told her we loved her. We gave her grandparents a chance to hold her. And then we said goodbye. We left the hospital the next evening for my parents' house. Walking out those doors with empty arms was one of the hardest things I have ever had to do. And the empty car seat in the back seat was a grim reminder of everything we'd lost. Amazingly, it only been 24 hours since we'd arrived at the hospital the evening before. It felt like a lifetime. We spent the next few days surrounded by family and friends, everyone grieving together. We finally delivered the surprise that we'd been safeguarding for months, that we'd chosen to give Alana the middle name Marie after my grandma, who we loved so much. Of course, Grandma Marie was honored. We were amazed at how much we managed to smile and laugh in between the tears and heartache. Everyone pulled together, Deep and I, our parents, our brothers, all our cousins and aunts and uncles. Everyone united in our shared misery. This family had been dealt a great blow, but we would get through it, together. We broke the heart-rending news to our friends slowly over the next several days. We contacted the funeral home to make arrangements for Alana's memorial. We went home and spent the week preparing. On the night before the memorial, we decided last minute to visit the funeral home and spend a few hours with Alana as we finished up assembling the photo boards for the wake. We couldn't believe we'd managed to fill three full poster boards with memories. We shared each of them with Alana, told her again how much we loved her and would miss her, stroked that soft, soft skin while we still had the chance. Even a week later, her skin still glowed. It broke our hearts how beautiful she looked, even in death. The following morning, we held a wake, a full Catholic mass, and a burial. My brother, Mikey, delivered a touching eulogy, a testament to how much this little girl meant to all of us before she'd even had a chance to live. And we buried Alana, perfect, in her tiny white casket, in the same plot as my other grandma, in my favorite cemetery in my hometown, where, no kidding, I used to like to play as a kid, much to my own mother's dismay. We felt very good about everything, it brought us a lot of closure and gave us an opportunity to honor the person she would have been, the person she was already to those closest to her. Some days, this entire pregnancy feels like a dream, a happy dream filled with hope that ended in an unthinkable nightmare. But then we woke up and went back to our lives as they were. It's an eerie feeling, but the hard truth is that it was not a dream at all. Everyone keeps asking how we're doing, and we're not really sure how to answer that question. Okay, we say, or we're hanging in there. The truth is, the grief comes and goes. Sometimes it's absolutely devastatingly crushing, like a mountain of sorrow sitting on my chest. And sometimes it's surprisingly mercifully absent. After all, it's hard not to smile when you're surrounded by the people you love. 
even if one of them is conspicuously absent. But the gaping hole in our lives where Alana should be is never far from mind. We can push it to the side for a time, but eventually it sucks us back in, laughing cruelly as we struggle just to stay afloat of our tears. We know that it will get easier, eventually, but we also know that it will never be right. We will always be missing something, someone, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. That's probably the hardest part. We want so badly to fix this, but there simply is no cure. It's taking a while for that to really sink in, for us to really come to terms with everything that's happened. And every time I come to the realization, again, that there's no way she's ever coming back, that I really am not going to wake up from this nightmare, that this is now my life, well, it just hurts all over again. But we just press on. What else can we do? We're doing everything we can to remember Alana. We've saved all her mementos in a keepsake box in our bedroom. We got those photo boards from the wake laminated and we'll share them someday with Alana's siblings so they'll know the story of the big sister who came before them. We planted trees in her honor and are getting a portrait painted so we can see her smile. I wear a necklace every day with her birthstone, which her father had bought in advance of her birth to me as a gift, hoping that I would someday pass it on to Alana herself. We filled out her baby book, sent out birth announcements. Basically, we did all the things we would have done anyway, because we want to celebrate her life. She brought so much love to us in the short time she was here. We just want to share that love with whomever's heart is open to receiving it. I'm still in utter disbelief that this happened to us, that this happens to anyone in this day and age. I had of course worried through the whole pregnancy about the possibility of miscarriage or early delivery. Not being able to carry a healthy baby to term was the deepest, darkest fear of the past 28 years of my life. But once we hit full term at 37 weeks, I finally breathed a sigh of relief. No matter what goes wrong now, I told myself, they could take that baby out and she'll be fine. It still amazes me that with all the reading I did, all the education I have, somehow I managed to overlook the entire possibility of a stillbirth, that I never knew it could happen to me. The one thing that has brought me the greatest comfort is knowing that in her short life and after her death, I have done everything I could for my daughter. I had a wonderful, happy pregnancy. I nourished her and loved her from the moment I knew she existed. And now that she is gone, I've done everything in my power to honor her memory and cherish the person she was. Of course, I question if there's anything I could have done differently, if I should have known sooner that something was wrong, if I made some kind of terrible mistake. I'm only human after all. But in the end, I know that these doubts stem from my desperate wish for control, from wanting something or someone to blame, even if it's myself. But I know in my heart that this was in God's hands. Try as I might, I cannot control everything. To Alana, I just want to say I love you. We love you. Your presence is already greatly missed and will be for the rest of our days. We will never, ever forget you. And we look forward to the day when we can finally hold you again. We love you so, so much, sweet baby girl. Watch over us. Keep your future brothers and sisters safe and know that you are always in our hearts. And thank you for that reading, Samantha. 
And Samantha asked that we share this note with all of you. Quote, I volunteer with the Star Legacy Foundation, the premier organization dedicated to stillborn research and prevention. It's so, so important to my husband and I to get the word out. Their website is StarLegacyFoundation.org. Again, that's StarLegacyFoundation.org. I would be so very grateful if you'd check it out. And thank you again, Samantha Banerjee and the experience she had with stillborn birth, her daughter, Alana Marie. The empty car seat in the back was a grim reminder of what we lost. That just struck me. And that'll happen the rest of her life. There'll be those reminders. And we know that when people say closure. I just always laugh at that. It's just the silliest thing. My mom died four years ago. I haven't come close to closure. And always the reminders are there. But there was this. She brought so much love to us while she was here. And so there you have it. Samantha's story. Alana Marie's story. Here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 